If you were here last Sunday for our service of lessons and carols, you'll have had nine Bible readings to do with the arrival of the promised Messiah at the very first Christmas. Four of those nine readings came from the Old Testament, five from the New Testament. At Good Shepherd, we follow Anglican tradition by featuring the very same nine passages every year at our carol service. But if we wanted to break with tradition and choose different passages, we'd be spoiled for choice. Today, we're going to look at an Old Testament passage about the promised Messiah that could easily take the place of one of the four Old Testament readings in the traditional annual service. Our second Bible reading this morning is Micah 5, verses 1 through 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labour has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do leave your service program open so we can keep looking at that passage during the sermon. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God to teach us as we study his word. A prayer from Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen. On the inside of the front door in Betsy's and my previous apartment, there was a strange metal box with the words Fox Police Lock on it. One day we decided to Google those words and we discovered that the Fox Police Lock was made to work with a long iron bar. You slotted one end of the bar into that box on the inside of the front door and the other end of the bar into a socket on the floor and the bar would then be at a diagonal angle. 
That iron bar going from the door to the floor made it much harder to smash through the door. Apparently firefighters who sometimes have to break down doors considered the Fox police lock the most secure door lock available. That box on the inside of our front door was a, a relic from New York City's violent past. In the high crime years of the 70s and 80s, New Yorkers gave a lot of thought to the security of their apartments. Praise God, the city is now much safer, but threats to our security haven't gone away. Nowadays, we have to think about our security in cyberspace, as well as our security in the physical world. Individuals can have their online identity stolen, businesses can be paralyzed by ransomware attacks on their computer systems. Thankfully, here in the States, we don't currently face the threat of military invasion by another country, but if we were in Ukraine, it would be a different story. 70,000 Russian troops have been deployed near the border with Ukraine, and the threat of a Russian invasion there is so real that President Biden has already begun to speak publicly about what the US reaction would be. We live in an insecure world. We can't go to sleep at night perfectly confident in the security of our family or our home or our possessions or our job. Even if we, uh, as a world, bring the pandemic under control and uh, inflation under control, we'll still face threats from other people, our fellow human beings. Insecurity is an unavoidable part of the human condition in this world. But the message of today's Bible passage is that God has done something to make his people eternally secure. Yes, we will still face short-term threats like the ones we've just been thinking about, but our eternal security should change our attitude to those threats. In the middle of verse 4, the prophet Micah says, and they shall dwell secure. And they shall dwell secure. It's God who's speaking through Micah. This is one of those thus says the Lord passages. And what does God say to his people? They shall dwell secure. That promise brings healing balm to our anxiety and worry. And what we'll see is that it's a promise that depends on the arrival of one person. A person who preceded human history and yet arrived within human history. Today's passage mentions three different regimes ruling over Israel. First, the judge spoken of in verse 1. Then in verse 2, another ruler takes charge. He's the one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, the one who preceded human history. And lastly, verse 5 introduces seven shepherds and eight princes of men who represent a third regime in charge of God's people. We're going to make our way through the passage regime by regime, beginning with a vulnerable judge, that judge in verse 1. A vulnerable judge. Verse 1 says, 
Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. In the Bible, judging is another word for ruling. And the ruler in view in verse 1 is King Hezekiah of Judah. If ancient history just makes your brain switch off, please tell your brain to stay switched on because ancient history in the Bible has present relevance. Micah prophesied during the time of King Hezekiah, we're told back in Micah chapter 1, and we know from elsewhere in the Old Testament that a siege was laid against Hezekiah and he suffered humiliating losses. He was struck on the cheek. Listen to this verse from 2 Kings chapter 18. In King Hezekiah's reign, the king of Assyria attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. One of those cities was Lachish, a Judean city 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Amazingly, there is a visual record from the time of Micah and King Hezekiah still in existence today, showing what the Assyrians did at Lachish. Sculpted wall panels found by archaeologists portray the Assyrian victory over the city of Lachish. They're known as the Lachish Reliefs. In one of the panels, the Assyrian king is shown seated on a throne while defeated Judean prisoners are forced to march in front of him. You can see Lachish reliefs in the British Museum in London or in a New York Times bestseller titled A History of the World in 100 Objects. The Lachish reliefs are object number 21 in that book of 100 Objects. They confirm what the Bible says about the Assyrian invasion into Judah. Summarized in verse 1, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The Assyrian invasion showed how vulnerable King Hezekiah was. He could not guarantee his people's security. Now, King Hezekiah was one of Judah's best kings. In fact, it was due to his humble dependence on God that Jerusalem itself didn't fall. In 2 Kings 19, God says to Hezekiah, I have heard your prayer concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. By the way that he came, he will return, declares the Lord. And that's what happened. The Assyrians were forced to retreat before they could conquer Jerusalem. So Hezekiah was a good king whose prayer for deliverance was answered by God. And yet the Assyrian campaign showed he was vulnerable. Jerusalem was spared but other cities were crushed. God's people could not look to King Hezekiah and think to themselves, he will keep us secure. It's time for us to move on to the next regime. We've seen that even King Hezekiah, one of Israel's best kings, was a vulnerable judge, and that sets up a stunning contrast with the second regime, an ancient ruler, an ancient ruler. Our first Bible reading today was from John chapter 7, and it points back to this very passage in Micah. Jesus' opponents knew that he came from Galilee, 
they don't seem to have known that he was born in Bethlehem. And in John chapter 7, they say, Has not the scripture said that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem? Bible scholars agree that the scripture they have in mind, the scripture they mention, is verse 2 of our passage today. Something similar happens in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 2, King Herod asks the chief priests and scribes to tell him where the Messiah will be born. And they say in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet. And they go on to quote from verse 2 of today's passage in Micah 5. So in the time of Jesus, those early decades of the first century AD, this passage in Micah was treated by the Jewish religious leaders as a prediction that the Messiah, Israel's saviour king, the world's saviour king, would come out of Bethlehem. The key verse is verse 2. Let's look down now to that verse. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. First we're told that out of Bethlehem a ruler in Israel shall come forth. Then verse 4 reveals the extent of that king's rule. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now, meaning from that time on, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. That's the Messiah. Now the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, like this one, are rather like clues that a detective gathers up to identify possible suspects. A boot print in the flower bed, a cigarette end, gunshot residue on a shirt. When all those clues point at one suspect, the detective can be confident that the right person has been identified. That's how it is with the messianic prophecies. Taken together, they give us an abundant wealth of evidence pointing toward just one person. This prophecy in Micah 5 contains two very significant clues. First, as we've seen, the Messiah must come forth from Bethlehem. Well, that shrinks the pool of possible candidates dramatically. Bethlehem was a village. Verse 2 says Bethlehem was too little to be among the clans of Judah. That's a reference back to the time of Joshua, when the twelve tribes each received their portion of Israel. Joshua chapter 15 describes the region allotted to Judah, the tribe of Judah. And it lists the main towns in that region. Bethlehem isn't included. It was too small. More than a hundred towns are listed, but not Bethlehem. It was too small to make it onto the list. Bethlehem's small size means Fewer people were born there compared with other larger towns and cities, which greatly reduces the number of potential messiahs. The second identification clue in this passage is to do with the age of the messiah. In the second half of verse 2, we find a brain-teasing riddle. God says of Bethlehem, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, 
from ancient days. It's a riddle. Someone will come forth who has already come forth long before. Those words, from of old, could also be translated from time everlasting. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from time everlasting. Elsewhere in the Bible, those exact words are used of God. Listen to Habakkuk 1 verse 12. It says, Are you not from time everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One. So, how can someone come forth from Bethlehem who has already come forth from time everlasting? The answer to that riddle was wrapped up in swaddling clothes and placed in a feeding trough in a cow shed 2,000 years ago. Only one person has ever come forth from Bethlehem who also came forth from time everlasting, Jesus. As Jesus himself says in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. He is the ancient arrival prophesied in this Bible passage from Micah 5. Jesus' foot and his foot alone fits the Cinderella slipper of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And that means Jesus is the ruler who fulfills the promise of security found in verses 4 and 5. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. During Jesus' public ministry, his followers expected him to bring that peace through political leadership. That's what two of his disciples say as they trudge gloomily away from Jerusalem three days after Jesus' crucifixion. The risen Jesus has met them on the road to Emmaus, but they haven't recognized him as Jesus yet. When he asks them what they've been talking about, they say, Jesus of Nazareth, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They'd been longing for Jesus to liberate Israel from the Romans, just as Moses had liberated Israel from the Egyptians centuries earlier. In their eyes, Jesus' crucifixion put an end to those hopes. But Jesus gives it to them straight in Luke chapter 24, verse 25. He says, How foolish you are! Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things? Why did Jesus say that? Why was it necessary? It was because Jesus' death on the cross is the basis of our security. Earlier we were thinking about the vulnerable judge, King Hezekiah, whose kingdom suffered so much at the hands of the Assyrians. He was struck with a rod on the cheek, as it says in verse 1. And that happened because of the people's sins. God let the Assyrians attack Hezekiah's kingdom because of the people's sins. In Micah chapter 1, 
Micah addresses Lachish, that defeated city. And he explains to Lachish, transgressions were found in you. In his justice, God had to deal with his own people, the Israelites, just as he had dealt with the earlier inhabitants of the land. Those Canaanites had been conquered because of their sins, we're told in the Old Testament. And in Micah's day, the same thing had to happen to the Israelites. It meant God's people at that time could never be secure because they kept on sinning and so they kept bringing punishment onto their own heads. The only way for God's people to become secure was for someone else to be conquered in their place. And that is why it was necessary for Messiah Jesus to suffer. Verse 1 was fulfilled in the time of King Hezekiah, but it was also fulfilled when Jesus was captured and crucified. Mark 15 verse 19 says, Again and again the soldiers struck Jesus on the head with a staff. On the following day he was struck by death. If you're trusting in Jesus, God no longer needs to punish you for your sin because Messiah Jesus has been struck by the rod of God's punishment in your place. Jesus was punished for other people's transgressions so that all who make him their king would be spared God's punishment. That's the basis of our security and peace. Paul says of Jesus in Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace. As Paul explains in that chapter, our peace is obtained through Jesus' blood, which reconciles us and God. It heals our broken relationship with God. God himself wanted that healing to happen. Look at the middle of verse 2, where God says, From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. For me. Because of God's great love for us. He wanted our broken relationship with him to be healed. So Jesus came forth from Bethlehem for God. To bring about through his death the good relationship God wanted to have with us. Jesus is our peace, the basis of our security. Those who trust in him have nothing to fear. We have eternal life. And when Jesus returns, we'll spend our days with him forever. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's time for us to look at the third of the three regimes in this passage. This third regime could easily be overlooked, but that would be a mistake. Verse 5 doesn't end with the memorable words, and he shall be their peace. It goes on to speak of other leaders. When the Assyrian comes into our land, verse 5 says, and treads in our palaces, 
we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. That's the third regime. Many princes. God's people will be led by many princes. The big surprise in verses 5 and 6 is that the ruler whose greatness will stretch to the ends of the earth doesn't immediately put an end to all the enemies of God's people. And that's what would happen in a Marvel movie, isn't it? The Messiah would arrive and then, boom, all the enemies of God's people would be swept away. End of story. Even before Marvel movies came along, people had that kind of expectation for the Messiah. They assumed the Messiah would bring quick and final victory. As we heard earlier, Jesus' own disciples expected him to liberate Israel right away. Verses 5 and 6 in our passage paint a different picture. A picture that really should have influenced the disciples' expectations. That's why Jesus rebukes them and calls them foolish. They hadn't paid proper attention to Micah and the other prophets. In verses 5 and 6, we see that the Assyrian, who symbolizes all the enemies of God's people, is still raiding the land after the Messiah has arrived. As a result, God's people have to raise up leaders to respond to that threat. The second half of verse 5 says, We will raise against him, meaning the Assyrian, seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Seven is the Bible's perfect number, so to have not just seven, but eight, is a way of saying God's people will have more than enough leaders to meet their need. The point we have to grasp here is that verses 5 and 6 are talking about the experience of God's people after Jesus' arrival. Ever since Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension, his followers have raised up leaders to shepherd them in an often hostile world. They serve under the authority of Jesus, the chief shepherd. Now, the land of Assyria, mentioned in verse 6, stands for the non-Christian world, symbolizes the non-Christian world. So when Micah says, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, he's saying that after the Messiah's arrival, the leaders of God's people will set out into enemy territory. They're armed with the sword, and according to the Bible, the most powerful sword is the word of God. In Ephesians 6, God's word is described as the sword of the Spirit. Listen to how the Tyndale Bible commentary explains Micah 5 verse 6. Today the Messiah brings the world under his dominion through under-shepherds endowed with his spirit. The sword of the spirit, the word of God. I'll read that quote again. Today the Messiah brings the world under his dominion through under-shepherds endowed with his spirit. So shepherding the land of Assyria with the sword is a picture of of the extraordinary missionary endeavours that have taken place during the past 2,000 years. Missionaries have gone out into the land of Assyria, armed with the sword of God's word. And they've kept going out. There truly has been an abundant supply of missionaries 
spreading Jesus' rule to the ends of the earth. In Luke 24, Jesus tells his disciples, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Jesus said that in 33 AD. Since that time, what he predicted has happened. Just as Micah before him said it would happen, and just as he himself said it would happen. Verse 6 ends with realism, and yet also reassurance. It speaks of two he's. The first he delivers God's people from the second he. So we're at the top of page 11 in the service program. I'll read. Let me see. Yes, I'll read from the top of page 11. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. That is the language of invasion there at the end of verse 6. It brings to mind towns burned to the ground, food and valuables seized, imprisonment and killing. But let's not forget the first he. He shall deliver us. That's the same he when you track back found at the start of verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. It's the same he found at the start of verse 5. He shall be their peace. It's the Messiah. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. What kind of deliverance can the Messiah offer in the midst of enemy invasion? Now that the Messiah has ascended, he can offer eternal deliverance. Listen to what Jesus says to his followers in Matthew chapter 10. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The words of Jesus in Matthew 10. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the future experience of his people. He's realistic about the dangers in this current world. But he tells his followers not to be afraid because our enemies cannot kill the soul. Jesus will deliver his followers eternally and that's the deliverance we need. If you're looking for security just in this world, Jesus doesn't offer it. What he offers is God's loving supervision in the midst of this world trials. Jesus says in that same chapter, Matthew 10, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So he offers God's loving supervision in the trials in this world 
and he also offers eternal life in the world to come. We mustn't over-invest in this world. We mustn't place all our eggs in the basket of this world. The eggs of this world are fragile and breakable. For Christians, just as they are for non-Christians. Jesus offers us the security that comes from eternal life, eternal deliverance. And that is the security we need. That is the security that brings us peace even in the midst of this world trials, when the Assyrian invades our land in the language of Micah 5. Micah 5 verses 1 through 6 is a Christmas passage. It prophesies the arrival of God himself, the Ancient of Days, in our world. We worship him, Jesus, the promised Messiah, because he alone provides eternal security. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know how easily we can set all our hopes on things in this world which are not secure. And we pray that you would keep us from that attitude, that overinvestment. Help us instead to look ahead eagerly to the world to come, where we will live with Jesus forever. We pray, Father, that thinking ahead, looking forward to being with Jesus, meditating on that eternal security, would give us confidence when we face trials in this world. Help us, Father, to experience the peace that is ours because we have eternal life. And we praise you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus, which is the basis of our peace. Amen.